In the ancient Near East, there flowed a river called Puratu, coursing from Mount Ararat south and east, down through the hills and across tribal boundaries. It was no trifling stream. The river brought life as it watered the land, flora and fauna, heartbeat and tree sap. It did what it pleased, flooded, receded, altered course, even as it continued in the same direction. The river was benevolent and dangerous, mighty and unignorable. What if there were a god like that? This is a story about the power of blessing and the threat of curse, the stubborn sturdiness of pride, and the frightening fragility of image. But mostly, it's a story about a god who courses across the landscape with little concern for expectation or borders, a promise-making god who treats his oaths as sacred, even, especially, when others do not. I'm Justin Gerhardt. Welcome to Holy Ghost Stories. My lord, messengers from the south, from Moab. Balaam, son of Beor, prophet, seer, sorcerer, cannot help but raise an eyebrow at this announcement. Moab is a long way from Aram, well over 350 miles, a journey of weeks. They've come all this way. This is good. Send them in, Balaam orders. The group of delegates enters, older men, all of them, and well-attired. These are not just messengers, but elders. Interesting. As they approach, they look uncomfortable, their bodies tense, a sustained flinch almost, as if anticipating a threat, wary of Balaam the sorcerer. Clearly, his reputation has preceded him. This is good. We have come to Pathor in Aram with a message to Balaam from Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, one of them announces, doing his best, perhaps, to ignore the bubbling cauldron or the severed goat's head suspended above it, maggots swarming what's left of the animal's eyes. A people has come out of Egypt. They swarm over the face of the land and have settled next to me. Come now and put a curse on these people, because they are too powerful for me. Perhaps then I will be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whoever you bless is blessed, and whoever you curse is cursed. There is no explicit identification of the people in question, but Balaam knows precisely who Balak has encountered. He's talking about the Hebrews, descendants of Abram in Ur, who dwelled in Hebron. The one who heard from the God of heaven and earth, who promised Abram, whoever blesses you, I will bless. 
Whoever curses you will be cursed. It is no secret the way the Hebrews have come crashing into the Levant after their escape from Egypt, moving en masse, conquering Sihon and Og, the great kings of the Amorites. The way these wanderers decimated the Amorite forces, it's unnatural, unnerving. Everyone is talking about it, even this far north. Word is, they call themselves Israel, the God wrestlers. Who has such an intimate relationship with a god? One of the elders holds out a jingling purse, the price of divination. This, after all, is a business transaction. Balaam, staff in hand, beads and bones rattling as he stands, looks at the visitors. Spend the night here. I will report back to you with the answer Yahweh gives me. He speaks with Yahweh, the elders marvel. They have come to the right place. The shadows lengthen and disappear, giving way to dusk and then nightfall. Balaam prepares to make contact with the god the Hebrews call Yahweh, the great king above all gods. Sacrifice, cultic ritual, blood and bones, smoke and ash, whatever Balaam does to get the attention of the god king, he does not spare any effort. And then, a voice. Him. Who are these men with you? Balaam peers into the darkness, answers. Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab, sent me this message. He summarizes the missive, leaving off the last line. Do not go with them, comes the reply. You must not put a curse on these people because they are blessed. Yahweh says it so matter-of-factly, as if their blessing is a given, irrevocable, steadfast, as if Yahweh's pronouncement of blessing and curse is what Balaam's is only reported to be. This is not the answer Balaam was hoping for, but he knows better than to defy this word. Yahweh is no trifling God. Dawn breaks, and Balaam says to the officials, Go back to your own country, for Yahweh has refused to let me go with you. He said no? Balak fumes, a cocktail of anger and fear percolating inside him. Very well, a second contingent, more distinguished officials than the first group, and, and more of them as well. If greater obeisance and a higher price are what Balaam wants, he shall have them. If something isn't done about this itinerant horde, Moab itself will be licked up like grass into an ox's mouth. When the second delegation arrives in Pethor, Balaam is frustrated, surely. 
if they ask me again to curse the Hebrews, this time with the highest ranking officials and a sweetened fee, and I cannot deliver, what will people think? Will they wonder if I really have the power to manipulate the unseen? Mystique is an easy thing to lose. It must be protected, cultivated. Besides, I like my reputation. When they come to me and cower, when they whisper about me in the streets, I am the one who holds the keys to mystery, who strides into the shadowy realm of divination that emerges with results. It is not just what I do. It is who I am. Blessing and curse begin and end with me. Yahweh watches as the Moabites approach. The larger-than-before group enters Balaam's chamber. If they shudder at the sight of his talismans, the shamanistic trappings adorning his person, the accoutrements of a hidden world, Balaam notices. Good. My aura is intact. But for how long? The Moabite spokesman swallows and addresses the seer. This is what Balak, son of Zippor, says. Please do not refuse to come to me. I will honor and reward you lavishly. Anything you tell me to do, I will do. I will pay anything. Only come and curse these people for me. Balaam inhales deeply, exhales. He rises, staff in hand, beads and bones rattling as he stands, and looks at the visitors. Even if Balak gave me all the silver and gold in his palace, I could not do anything great or small to go beyond the command of Yahweh, my God. Disappointment swells within the eyes of the officials, but dissipates suddenly as Balaam continues. Now, spend the night here so that I can find out what else Yahweh will tell me. While the Moabites sleep, Balaam communes with the immaterial asks not for the will of God, but for permission to satisfy this client and curse these wanderers, does his best to cajole deity into bending to his own desires. After all, he is Balaam, son of Baor. He sees, knows, blesses, curses. Suddenly, a voice, Since these men have come to summon you, go with them. But make sure you do nothing other than what I tell you. Dawn breaks, and Balaam saddles his donkey. She stands patiently as he places the bit in her mouth, a familiar ritual for the mount of a sought-after prophet. She's been with Balaam for some time now, this donkey. Her agreeable demeanor, her steady presence, critical to his work. They all head out together, beginning the three-week journey to Moab with Balak's delegation leading the way. If the royal officials are confident as to the outcome of Balaam's impending visit, Balaam is less certain. As the days pass, he has plenty of time to reflect. How will this end? Did Yahweh change his mind about the curse? About his devotion to the Hebrews? It seems so, otherwise why would he instruct me to go? Yes, surely 
Yahweh has changed direction. And because of me, Balaam, son of Beor, the great Balaam, son of Beor, seer, sorcerer, mage. Yahweh seethes. Suddenly, Balaam pitches to the side, almost thrown to the ground by his donkey, who has veered without warning. Beads and bones rattling, Balaam jerks the reins, but the animal lurches on an oblique course entirely off the road and into a field. The donkey's heart is racing. Never has it seen. What was that? Like a human, but more, and its sword drawn. A smart animal knows when it's in danger, and this was obviously... But the donkey's wild eyes grow even larger when it feels the crack of Balaam's staff on its haunches. The prophet shakes his head as his servants look on from behind, trying no doubt to stifle a laugh. How embarrassing. Balaam's chagrin finds expression in still stronger swings of his staff, violently convincing the donkey to get back onto the road. Before long, the travelers find themselves snaking between vineyards on the outskirts of Moab, the narrow path bordered on each side by stone walls. Balaam, perhaps, has relaxed back into a reflective state of mind, daydreaming about the reception he'll receive in Balak's palace, the acclaim that will come when he establishes himself as... Suddenly, Balaam pitches to the side, almost thrown to the ground by his donkey, who has veered without warning. This time, though, there is a wall instead of a field. Pain shoots up Balaam's leg as his foot is crushed between the animal and the stone. Rage boils inside of Balaam as he reaches again for his staff, beating his donkey with irate zeal. Reluctantly, she moves back to the center of the path, but only after scraping along the wall for another several feet. Again, her eyes are frantic. Why doesn't he understand? They continue on, and the incensed Balaam cannot help, at this point perhaps, imagining the Moabite official's reaction to his writing incidents. If he can't control his own donkey, how's he going to get the great Yahweh to rain down curses on anyone? As they continue on, the walls narrow even further, squeezing the path into a scant ribbon, not even wide enough for two to walk abreast. Suddenly, Balaam pitches forward, almost thrown to the ground by his donkey, who has laid down without warning. Stopped fast, the animal lies flat on the ground as Balaam raises his staff, now at the ready, and brings it down with abandon on the donkey's flesh. Again, her eyes a frenzy of fright and now pain, he dismounts to continue the assault. Now, Yahweh opens her mouth. What have I done to make you beat me these three times? Balaam, shocked, surely looks in disbelief at his donkey. What do you do when your donkey talks to you? But Balaam's anger and injured pride eclipse his surprise, and he yells back without thinking, You've made a fool of me! If only I had a sword in my hand, I would kill you right now! The donkey speaks again. A conversation now? Am I not your own donkey, which you have always ridden to this day? Have I been in the habit of doing this to you? No, Balaam admits. And now... It is time for phase two of Yahweh's plan, or phase seven, depending on how you count. 
Yahweh opens Balaam's eyes. And finally, he sees what his donkey has seen all along, the angel of Yahweh standing before them with his sword drawn. Suddenly, Balaam pitches forward, thrown to the ground by reflex, face in the dirt, heart racing, eyes wild, frantic, frenzied, much like his vocal friend. With his cheeks still pressed against the gravel, Balaam hears a voice speaking to him. It sounds familiar, not dissimilar from Yahweh's voice. Why have you beaten your donkey these three times? The angel of Yahweh demands. Balaam raises his face, perhaps to answer, but the angel continues to speak. A rhetorical question, it seems. I have come here to oppose you because your path is a reckless one before me. Perhaps Balaam is initially confused, remembering the explicit permission Yahweh gave him to accompany the Moabites on this journey. And then, perhaps a moment later, he thinks of some of the thoughts he's been having, the famed superiority about which he's been fantasizing. Did this being hear his thoughts? What kind of God? If your donkey had not turned away, I would certainly have killed you by now. And then as if offered as an aside for the donkey's benefit, but I would have spared her. Balaam is beside himself. Never in all my dealings with the spirit world have I seen anything like... Wait, did he say the donkey turned away because she saw him? How did... Why didn't I? But she could. I, it could. I, I'm, I'm supposed to be the one who... And now a donkey has made me look blind in comparison. Humiliated, humbled, Balaam finally manages to speak. I have sinned. I did not realize you were standing in the road to oppose me. If you are displeased, I will go back. Looking Balaam in the eye, the warrior, or angel, or Yahweh, says, Go with the men, but speak only what I tell you. Is that Balak? There, in the distance, riding this way with an entourage. We're nowhere near the palace. Why has he come all the way up to the edge of Moabite territory? When the king of Moab meets the caravan of road-weary travelers, he wastes no time on small talk or niceties. Did I not send you an urgent summons? Why did you not come to me? Did you think I couldn't reward you as I said I would? Well, I have come to you now. Balaam is in no mood after what he's been through. Know this, though. I cannot say whatever I please. I will speak only the message that the deity puts in my mouth. That is not what I'm hiring you to... Ah, he's being coy. This dance is all part of the process, thinks Balak, surely. Come, Balaam, son of Beor. I know just the place for this. Balaam follows on his donkey as they travel to a place called Kiriath-Huzoth. There, Balak steps comfortably into his role as pagan priest-king and slits the throat of a bull as a sacrifice to the deity. A thanksgiving, perhaps, for Balaam's safe, if late, arrival, 
or the seeking of favor from Balak's gods. Another bull. Another. Sheep as well, one after another. You will join me in this, he tells Balaam and the officials calling them over. Finally, rest. After a long-awaited good night's sleep, Balaam rises and is brought by Balak up to a rocky hill called Bamoth Baal, a high place set aside for Baal worship. It's the perfect vantage point. From here, Balak shows Balaam the problem. There, Balak points. Balaam looks down on the Moabite plain below. At first, it's difficult to tell what he's looking at. Some part of the landscape, surely. An enormous rock field? No, the rocks are all rectilinear. And they're not scattered, but arrayed. Rows and columns. Tents. Balaam perhaps cannot help but say aloud, This is the camp of the Hebrews? If Balak replies, he does so with a tremor in his voice. No, this is the edge of the camp of the Hebrews. No wonder the king is terrified. Balaam goes to work. Build me seven altars here he orders the king, and prepare seven bulls and seven rams for me. Balak obeys. The altars are constructed and the offerings readied. Once all has been prepared, hours or perhaps days later, Balaam tells the king to join him. Together, the two offer one bull and one ram on each of the seven altars. Balaam's donkey looks on as blood drains from the necks of the creatures, as the life fades from their wild eyes. In time, seven plumes of smoke travel skyward toward him. Stay here, Balaam says to the king. I will go to see if Yahweh will come to meet with me. Whatever he reveals to me, I will tell you. The sorcerer climbs further up to a bare stretch of hilltop. He prays, he waits, and Yahweh meets him there. I have prepared seven altars and have sacrificed a young bull and a ram on each altar, Balaam informs him. And then the seer asks Yahweh for permission to issue a curse on the children of Abraham, to speak weaponized words and assault their future, undermine their recent progress, doom them to defeat. He waits. And Yahweh puts a word in Balaam's mouth. Does he know what this oracle is? Or does it remain hidden from him until the moment he speaks it? Go back to Balak and give him this word, commands Yahweh. Balaam, staff in hand, beads and bones rattling, stands before King Balak and the officials of Moab, overlooking the mass of Hebrews camped on the plain below. 
He dons his hide hood, perhaps for this moment, the skinned head of a lion. Black and gold mane rippling in the wind, Balaam stretches his arms out, holding his staff aloft. King Balak's heart pummels his chest. Balak brought me from Aram, the king of Moab from the eastern mountains. Come, he said, curse Jacob for me. Come, denounce Israel. How can I curse those whom God has not cursed? How can I denounce those whom Yahweh has not denounced? From the rocky peaks I see them. From the heights I view them. I see a people who live apart and do not consider themselves one of the nations. Who can count the dust of Jacob or number even a fourth of Israel? Let me die the death of the righteous, and may my final end be like theirs. The sorcerer's hands lower. He removes his lion's mane hood. Balak is incredulous. That's all? What have you done to me? I brought you to curse my enemies. Instead, you have blessed them. Balaam, though, remains steadfast. I will speak only the message that the Lord puts in my mouth. This, surely, will affect his fee. Come with me to another place, Balak orders Balaam. Thankfully, this failed oracle only affected the outskirts of the camp, the Hebrews visible from this spot. Everyone knows that's how curses work. Balaam listens as the king of Moab explains, In this new place, you will see another part of the nation of Israel, but not all of them. Curse at least that many. Ah, not a bad idea. Perhaps Yahweh could be convinced to curse a different portion of the Hebrews. Balaam follows Balak to the plateau of Zophim on Pisgah Peak, a commanding view. Balaam looks down once again on the nomad Hebrews, 40 years in the wilderness after leaving Egypt, or so the stories go. They must be ready for what's next as they stand on the cusp of their new life in the land Yahweh promised to Abraham generations ago. But promises can be broken, right? Once again, Balaam organizes the building of seven altars and offers one bull and one ram on each altar. Stand here by your burnt offerings while I go to meet with Yahweh, he says to the king. When Balaam returns to the altars and the crowd of officials, Balak is eagerly awaiting the answer. What did Yahweh say? He asks. The sorcerer turns toward the Israelites, assumes the posture of proclamation, and speaks. Rise up, Balak, and listen. Hear me, son of Zippor. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Listen, I received a command to bless. 
God has blessed and I cannot reverse it. No misfortune is in his plan for Jacob, no trouble in store for Israel. For Yahweh, their God, is with them. He has been proclaimed their king. No curse can touch Jacob. No magic has any power against Israel. For now it will be said of Jacob, what wonders God has done for Israel. These people rise up like a lioness, like a majestic lion rousing itself. They refuse to rest until they have feasted on prey, drinking the blood of the slaughtered. Balaam's arms fall. Immediately, Balak's voice pierces the air. Shut your mouth! If you won't curse them, at least don't bless them! Balaam replies simply, Did I not tell you? I can only do what Yahweh tells me. In this business, clients recognize, of course, that the dark arts require submission. One does not simply enter the realm of the gods and start issuing commands. But in the end, a paying customer wants his requests honored, and a tolerance for disappointment can only be stretched so far. What good is a sorcerer for hire who cannot be hired? But this is all feeling bigger than that. There is more at stake here than Balaam's reputation, than his acclaim, than him. Balaam is witnessing the power and the promise-keeping love of Yahweh, and he cannot help but be affected by that. Right? At Balak's request, another high place, another seven altars. The king of Moab is nothing if not persistent. But this time is different. Balaam has accepted that Yahweh's posture toward these people will not be manipulated. This time, he does not bother to leave Balak and the officials. No courting of the deity, no divination to convince God to appear. Instead, Balaam simply turns to the west and looks out on Israel's camp. Is that a cloud? What a strange shape. And so low. Suddenly, the sorcerer's eyes change. As the Moabites watch, Balaam feels himself overtaken made subject, changed by Yahweh. In this moment, all of him has been put aside. Balaam, son of Beor, the blind Balaam who could not see a divine warrior standing in front of him, the humble Balaam who cannot speak a word unless he is given it, the mage who's been entirely upstaged by an immutable god, speaks. This is the message of Balaam, son of Beor, the message of the man whose eyes see clearly, the message of one who hears the words of God, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who bows down with eyes wide open. He continues with benediction, words intended days ago as weapons now beaten by Yahweh into plowshares sowing favor among his people. 
And then Balaam utters this final pronouncement. Blessed is everyone who blesses you, Israel, and cursed is everyone who curses you. At this, Balak flies into a rage, clapping his hands and shouting, I called you to curse my enemies! Instead, you have blessed them three times. Now go, get out, go back home. I promised to reward you richly, but Yahweh has kept you from your reward. Balaam takes a step forward. Don't you remember what I told your messengers? I said even if Balak were to give me his palace filled with silver and gold, I would be powerless to do anything against the will of Yahweh. I told you that I could say only what Yahweh says. I'm returning to my own people, but first let me tell you what the Israelites will do to your people in the future. And then, before Balaam journeys back north, a final series of oracles, free of charge. Words of violence, death, destruction, consequence. Balak's eyes widen, surely, as he and his people are spoken against by these enchanted declarations. Who is this Yahweh, and why is he bent on bringing these people into this land? Down in the Israelite camp, they are completely unaware of what's been happening in the hills. At times, it seems they are unaware of Yahweh entirely. These few weeks, in fact, are bookended by moments of acute faithlessness and rebellion, heartbreaking episodes for Yahweh, and fatal for many Israelites. And so, these oracles of benediction. Why? These declarations of favor. How could a God who sees all meet in the hills with a shaman to turn curse into blessing while on the plains below the blessed dishonor and reject him? The kindness, the affection and provision and promise it all just seems so undeserved. After all they did, after he rescued them from slavery, after their cowardly assessment of the promised land's defenses, after the constant complaining, they said they hated the manna. After the whispering about Moses, after knowing they'd sleep with the Moabite women and worship their pagan gods, Yahweh loves them? After all this time? Always. Yahweh watches Balaam journeying north toward the river with his donkey, watches Balak on his way back to the palace, watches Moses and the god wrestlers camped in the plains of Moab, and thinks, perhaps, about the final oracle he gave Balaam. Nestled amidst the rest of the words, were these 
A star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. If Yahweh sighs, it's a tired, hopeful sigh. The sigh of one who sees all, who will raise a perfect king up from among these imperfect people. A king who serves, too, as prophet and priest and sacrifice. Balaam doesn't understand. Yahweh's insistence on blessing the Israelites is not prejudice. He has not chosen Israel over the rest of the world. He has chosen Israel for the rest of the world. It is the only way. Blessing from curse. Hey, Justin here. I hope you were blessed by the story of the wordsmith and the sorcerer. When I gave the incredible patrons of Holy Ghost Stories a chance to vote on which stories they wanted told this season, Balaam and his donkey was number one. No surprise, I suppose, a talking donkey is kind of a ringer. Of course, the story is much bigger than that particular moment, and it was fascinating to spend so much time with it as I was creating this episode. But patrons, this one's for you. If you take a look at this story in Numbers 22 through 24, you'll find that as is my custom, I've stayed quite close to the text, but there were some storytelling decisions I had to make, some really fascinating details that are withheld or implied or left open in the biblical narrative. I'm sharing some great stuff about that in this week's edition of The Latest. So if you heard something in this episode and thought, wait, why did he check out the latest because there's a good chance I address it there. I'll also tell you about the first time I came across this story in the Bible um, myself. This story may be like one of those huge tragic world events. Everyone remembers where they were when they heard that fill in the blank. Anyway, uh, that and some other good stuff is in the April 25th, 2022 edition of the latest. If you're not subscribed, go sign up. It's free and I think you'll dig it. Visit holyghoststories.org or just click the link in the show notes. Finally, a huge thank you to those of you who make Holy Ghost Stories possible by supporting it financially as patrons. This podcast requires full-time hours and more from me, and so if you're listening right now, it's thanks to my patrons. There are three tiers of support, Anecdotalist, Storyteller, and Raconteur. Anecdotalists and Storytellers, I love you guys. And Raconteurs, you guys are extra crazy. Consider this shout-out, my blessing over you, shouted from the hills of Moab. Stephanie, Vincenta, Cheyenne, Boo, Helen, Elizabeth, Scott and Susan, Rick, Mindy, Maddie, April, Eric and Jody, John, Ricky, Brandy, Kimmy, Steve, Patrick, Liz, Stevens, Terry, Jack, Nelwyn, Julie, Jamie, Stephen, Bill and Trina, Jessica, Ken, Alyssa, Sloan and Jamie. Truly, thank you. Till next time. 